I'm very, very happy to be able to be with everybody this evening and uh, to come together to stop. Um, I think it's more important than ever that we do our best to uh, cultivate mindfulness and concentration so we can choose where to place our minds because it's very easy to get uh, pulled off center, I think, by all of the stuff that we're confronted with. And I just wanted to um, uh, start off with a poem to, uh, for our sitting. And the poem is called Mind Wanting More by Holly Hughes. And she says, only a beige slat of sun above the horizon like a shade pulled not quite down. Otherwise clouds, sea rippled here and there, birds reluctant to fly. The mind wants a shaft of sun to stir the gray porridge of clouds, an osprey to stitch sea to sky with its barred wing, some dramatic music, a symphony perhaps, a Chinese gong. But the mind always wants more than it has. One more bright day of sun, one more clear night in bed with the moon, one more hour to get the words right, one more chance for the heart in hiding to emerge from its thicket in uh, dried grasses. As if this quiet day with its tentative light weren't enough, as if joy weren't strewn all around. So I thought it was a lovely poem to describe how our minds uh, kind of have a mind of their own and we're looking and grasping. That's one of the things that the Buddha said was the cause of a lot of our suffering, was uh, uh, that grasping in our minds. So during our sit tonight, just be aware of where your mind goes or where it tends to go. And just notice, there's no judgment or criticism, you just notice and constantly bring it back to your breath. Just enjoy your breath from its beginning to its end and allow your mind and body to settle and uh, be 100% present. We're not going to get anything, uh, any of those unfinished projects done for the next uh, couple hours. So you can just relax and be present. So thank you so much for being here. So welcome again, dear friends. Uh, that was a lovely sit. Um, I think we've uh, um, kind of hit another part of this journey through the uh, mm, turbulent waters that we've been in for quite some time. Uh, it seems to me that um, a lot of folks who have been calling me and uh, wanting to talk about certain things have really uh, the reality of what we're dealing with has sort of set in that this is a very long haul, uh, that it's not, uh, I used to say I don't think that uh, this is a sprint, I think it's a marathon, but lately I've been saying I don't think it's a marathon, I think it's a triathlon, that um, it uh, uh, has the potential for uh, uh, taking a very long time. And so, uh, I think we've hit another, uh, another level of having to practice with that, of trying to uh, pay really close attention to our minds and where are we allowing them to go and are we making up stories about um, uh, the meaning of all of this. And so um, I think that it's important for us to uh, uh, 
again, like I said, really deep in our practice of uh, being mindful of our minds, because the mind is the, is the source of most all of our suffering. So I wanted to look tonight, I wanted to focus a little bit on um, the four questions that I invite you to ask yourself, and I ask myself all the time. Uh, but before we did that, I wanted to read a little bit out of uh, this uh, Old Path White Clouds, um, which is the story of the Buddha's life that uh, Tai went into the monastery when he was 16 years old. And at that time, they were worshiping Buddha as a god. That, um, and he said he did everything. He memorized the gattas. He memorized the sutras. He was a very uh, diligent monk. But by the time he was 40, he said he finally felt enough confidence and enough wisdom that he could write a book to uh, set something straight because the thing that had never, uh, uh, never really settled for him was the fact that the Buddha was a human being and he was getting worshipped as a god. And Tai really wanted to make the Buddha into the human being that he was. So he wrote Old Path, White Clouds, which is the story of the Buddha's life. And uh, if you haven't read it, it's written in a very uh, uh, accessible way. It's an interesting story. But anyway, at one point, the uh, uh, Buddha is speaking. I wanted to read this because uh, we're living in a time of such divisiveness and such attachment to views. People have such strong, strongly held views, and it causes a lot of... Um, um, conflict, uh, not only with ourselves but with each other. Um, so the Buddha was speaking to his disciples and he said, once a person is caught by belief in a doctrine, he loses all his freedom. When one becomes dogmatic, he believes his doctrine is the only truth and that all other doctrines are heresy. Disputes and conflicts uh, all arise from narrow views. They can extend endlessly wasting precious time, and sometimes even leading to war. Attachment to views is the greatest impediment to the spiritual path. Bound to narrow views, one becomes so entangled that it is no longer possible to let the door of truth open. So um, this is what you can sometimes, uh, probably we get caught ourselves, or we might have, it's easier to notice it in other people, that... Uh, uh, people are so fiercely connected to their views that you know that there's no point in talking to them about it because there's no room for uh, conversation and there's no room to take in any other, uh, other view. Um, so he goes on to say, um, if we're uh, attached to some belief and hold it to be the absolute truth, we may one day find ourselves... Um, uh, thinking that we already possess the truth, we'll be unable to open our minds to receive the truth, even if the truth comes knocking at our door. And then his disciple said, but what of uh, your own teaching? If someone follows your teaching, uh, will he become caught in narrow views? And the Buddha says, my teaching is not a doctrine or philosophy. It's not the result of discursive thought or mental conjecture, like various philosophies, which contend that the fundamental essence of the universe is fire, water, earth, wind, or spirit, or that the universe is either finite or infinite, temporal or eternal. Mental conjecture and discursive thought about truth 
are like ants crawling around the rim of a bowl. They never get anywhere. My teaching is not a philosophy. It's the result of direct experience. The things I say come from my own experience. You can confirm them all uh, by your own experience. If I teach that all things are impermanent and without a separate self, uh, this I have learned from my own direct experience. You can too. I teach that all things depend on all other things to arise, develop, and pass away. Nothing is created from a single original source. I have directly experienced this truth, and you can also. My goal is not to explain the universe, but to help guide others to have a direct experience of reality. Words cannot describe reality. Only direct experience enables us to see the true face of reality. And so the disciple says, wonderful, wonderful. But what would happen if a person did perceive your teachings as dogma? And then the uh, Buddha says um, uh, that that would uh, definitely be a big mistake. Uh, he said, um, uh, a person who only, lo uh, oh, uh, he says, my teaching is a means of practice, not something to hold on to or worship. My teaching is like a raft used to cross the river. Only a fool would carry the raft around after he had already reached the other shore, the shore of liberation. And so um, the uh, Buddha really wants us to understand that it's, um, it's a practice. This is what we need to do, that it's not about... Um, he gave us, as I've said before, he gave us the road map and it's up to us to take the trip um, that uh, he and Ty have given us all kinds of instructions for um, uh, how we can avoid the pitfalls along the road, how we avoid all the potholes, um, but we have to do it ourselves. Nobody outside of ourselves can enlighten us. It's an inside job. And um, we find the truth. Uh, when we recite the five trainings, Tai said that um, uh, the five trainings are there to help us make decisions. And each decision is made from uh, asking, uh, what is going to cause the least amount of suffering for myself and for everyone else? That's the criteria we use to make our uh, decisions. And that answer could be different for everyone. So there are no absolutes. Uh, but like I said, I wanted to start off with that just in terms of attachment to views being one of the biggest obstacles on the path. And um, so Ty, the way he teaches us to uh, get beyond that is to always ask, are you sure? Because I don't know how many of you, could, I can listen to the news and uh, there can be something outrageous happening. And uh, I could say, um, oh, this is horrible, terrible, awful. Uh, this is going to be the uh, end of all possible happiness in the world. And um, what Ty says is to always ask, are you sure? Because we don't know what the outcome will be. Nobody does. Um, are we sure that, um, uh, you know, Right now, you can see everybody's having to live with don't know mind. It's very difficult. Um, 
they had a little girl on this morning. I saw uh, the news, and they all they put sometimes they put just something that's humorous to lighten up the news. I think, and they had uh, a little clip of a a little girl who was having a total meltdown because of um, not being able to do what she wanted. That uh, this pandemic had she'd had enough, and uh, she said and. And the only thing that's open is nothing. And she goes, nothing, nothing is open. And uh, McDonald's, my favorite restaurant, is closed. Everything that's fun is closed. And she was just beside herself miserable. And she said, uh, uh, her dad said, well, we could, they're doing takeout. We can get takeout. No, we can't. She said, the playground is closed. And so you have to just sit in your car and wait for the takeout, and it's boring. We can't even do takeout. Everything that's fun is closed. And she just was inconsolable. She just, uh, she wasn't having it. But this is how we get, uh, we get attached to things. So uh, she was sure that the world uh, was just... Absolutely, all of her happiness was gone until, of course, the ice cream truck came by and she cut an ice cream, and that was okay. It made everything much better. But um, we need to ask, are you sure? It can save us a lot of time and trouble and a lot of suffering uh, when we know we're not sure. Like I said, people are having a hard time not being sure. It's really, really difficult. We're used to being able to make plans and put things in place. and. Uh, have some idea of what will be happening a month from now or two months from now, and we want to take a vacation, and will we be able to do what we want? Uh, so in some ways, we're very much like the little girl, <laughs> uh, but we need to watch our minds. That's one of the advantages of being uh, an adult, um, is that we can train our minds. This is a big advantage of uh, having a practice, is that we can train our minds so we can be mindful of our mind and watch that tendency of... Uh, uh, making up those stories arise in us and we can correct the misperception. We don't know, and it's okay not to know. We can just do our best putting one foot in front of the next and doing the next best thing that we could possibly do. And uh, so I always ask myself, are you sure? Which is the question Ty invites us to ask. And then I ask, um, what am I afraid of? If uh, that doesn't calm me down. I ask, what am I afraid of? And a lot of times I find myself uh, getting very uh, impatient with what's going on. I can feel impatience come up, the energy of impatience, the energy of anger, uh, frustration. And um, so then I want to ask myself, what am I afraid of? Because Tai tells us that fear uh, is the ground from which anger grows. That's the soil from which anger grows. So if we find ourselves being angry or frustrated, upset or miserable like that little girl, uh, we can look and see, what are we afraid of? And it could be she's afraid she'll never have another McDonald's. <laughs> I don't know if we look deeply uh, what all of her fears are about. But um, I usually do find that if I um, sit with my fear and look deeply, uh, or if I sit with my anger, rather, and look deeply at my anger, I'll come to something that I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that uh, uh, things are not going to work out the way I would like to see them work out. And that takes us to the next question. The next question I always ask is, what am I attached to? 
Am I attached to a view, which is what we've talked about? Or am I attached to an outcome? Um, I want things to be the way I want them to be. And um, if they're not, I'm not happy. This is what most of us have that kind of uh, habit energy. And to really be able to stop and look at that and say, huh, what is it that I'm attached to? Um, well, I want things to work out in this certain way. And if this and this and this happens, that is not going to be the case. And therefore, life as, as I want it to be is not happening. And um, uh, we can get ourselves real upset. Uh, or attachment to a view. How many people um, get absolutely enraged with people who just have a different view? There's nothing that's happened. There's nothing changing in the world. But if somebody states an opinion about something that is very, very different, uh, people become enraged. Um, and so we have to look at that and say, huh, is there fear underlying that anger? That, uh, oh my goodness, if this person believes that, what does that mean? And that means that this and this and this could happen, and that could mean that the world is going to turn out in a way that I don't want to see it turn out, and uh, I won't get what I want. Um, or it could be totally dangerous to all of us. Uh, uh, but the bottom line is that is getting enraged about it of any benefit. So that takes us to the last question. And the last question is, is the way I am thinking about this of any benefit to myself or anybody else? And if the other questions haven't helped you to uh, get out of that Mobius strip of negative thinking, uh, hopefully that question will. Is the way I'm thinking about this of any benefit to myself or anybody else? And usually, if uh, all I'm doing is ruminating and getting upset and um, getting angry myself, uh, it probably won't do much good. Um, and then what we need to be able to do is to sit down, breathe to our bellies, calm ourselves down, and look deeply to understand what is this really about. It's been very interesting to... Um, have this pandemic happening and uh, uh, people getting um, very fiercely attached to views about wearing masks, something that simple, that uh, and people uh, really getting violent with people who are not doing the what they think that people should do, um, whether it's wearing masks or not wearing masks. So. Uh, this just goes to show you how completely malleable these minds are. If we're able to sit down and look at that and say, hmm, you know, is, uh, is it really worth getting all wound up and furious uh, about something like a face mask? But it's not the face mask. It's um, the principle of the thing. It gets down to, uh, I've heard people say, um, uh, it's my First Amendment. Uh, it's my First Amendment right. Um, they bring in the Constitution to uh, uh, justify not wearing a mask. It's, I, I need uh, my personal freedom. You're infringing on my freedom. And uh, 
those kind I mean it's like this fierce fierce attachment to a view and as Ty said those attachments to views are what lead to war uh, we can have uh, conflicts with ourselves conflicts with each other um, and when we really look at them um, generally it's not worth it at all um, but in our minds, we can work up a head of steam, and like I said, it goes from simply being a face mask to being a symbol of something much bigger, and then to have, uh, there's a whole philosophy or a doctrine or dogma, as the Buddha was talking about, attached to that face mask. And um, in our uh, uh, precepts, when we recite the 14 mindfulness trainings, um, you know, the first of the 14, let me see, here we go. Uh, the first one of the 14 is uh, aware of the suffering created by fanaticism and intolerance. We are determined not to be idolatrous about or bound to any doctrine, theory, or ideology, even Buddhist ones. We are committed to seeing the Buddhist teachings as guiding means that help us learn to look deeply and develop our understanding and compassion. They are not doctrines to fight, kill, or die for. We understand that fanaticism in its many forms is the result of perceiving things in a dualistic and discriminative manner. We will train ourselves to look at everything with openness and the insight of interbeing in order to transform dogmatism and violence in ourselves and in the world. So right there, we have a wonderful uh, roadmap. We have wonderful instructions for navigating the waters that we're in. That um, just to be mindful and pay attention, um, look at everything uh, with openness and the insight of interbeing. I have been in so many conversations in the last couple of weeks with people who are uh, uh, strong advocates for um, uh, taking a stand against injustice, say. And um, I have just been amazed. They call themselves practitioners, but when our passions get ignited and when we have a cause that we're fiercely attached to, it's not that hard to develop dualistic thinking that uh, we can even become dualistic for people within the same movement that we're a part of. Uh, I saw this within the peace movement uh, back in, during the Vietnam War, that um, we, we had created a duality uh, with those who were proponents of war and those who weren't. That was obvious. But then within the peace movement itself, there would be all kinds of views that would arise and uh, small um, kind of petty disagreements and you're not being as good of an activist as you could be and you're not doing it the way I think you should do it or whatever. There's all kinds of uh, uh, judgments and criticisms that come up. Um, and I think that that's something with all that we're involved in now in our country that's really, really important for those of us who are practitioners and who want to be peace and want to be able to uh, uh, 
create peace and be able to uh, offer that to um, other people, that that's something we really need to try our best to pay attention to. When am I falling into dualistic thinking? I think it's so easy to do. Um, it's so, I mean, people are causing suffering, and you look at those people and you think, oh. um, but the fact is, we inter are. The fact is that we uh, need to figure out some way to all move forward, that we're all in this, and we all need to be able to help each other to find our way out. And um, you can see in countries where uh, uh, people are trained from birth to have a much more collective view, uh, a much more of a, uh, a view of the importance of community, say, uh, and the uh, doing things for the good of the community, that uh, it's been a lot easier for them to uh, get control of this virus than for those of us who are coming from a place of fierce individualism. And um, uh, you can't tell me what to do, uh, that kind of obstreperousness and, um, um, what could I say? Hmm. Well, I think you know what I mean. Uh, but it's that uh, uh, when we can finally get beyond the surface of things and see that this is critical, that we learn to interbe, that um, we learn that we're inextricably connected to everyone else. Like I said, there are the parts of this experience that can be so helpful and so instructive and can, uh, they've, oh, it's opened so many windows on the uh, things that need fixing in our culture. Uh, we get to have a ringside seat to see um, the ugliness of racism that's been very deeply, deeply, deeply ingrained in our conditioning for hundreds of years. And um, we get to see the suffering caused by that and the inequities. Um, and that can be a really wonderful thing if we pay attention and if we set about very uh, uh, concertedly to see what could I do to help. Oh, there's systemic injustice. Is there anything we can do to uh, change the systems so that uh, there's more equity for everyone? And um, what we know, uh, I think maybe, I'm not sure if the last time we were together, um, I talked to you about a group of the aspirants were looking at the uh, sutra on the eight realizations of great beings. And the sixth realization is that poverty causes violence and um, anger. And uh, when I read this, I thought, yeah. Um, and we still don't understand that we need to share that if we don't do that, we have revolutions. All, if you go back through history, uh, you'll see that almost every revolution, the cause of it was the inequity between the rich and the poor. And uh, so I don't know how long it's going to take for us to uh, understand that if we can come to the understanding that we have enough 
and that uh, we can share. If we have more than enough, we can share. Uh, somebody just sent me a t-shirt that uh, has a lovely illustration on it. And it says, when uh, you've got more than you need, build a longer table, not a higher wall. And uh, we want to share with people. Um, it just makes the world a much more joyful place uh, that everybody can be taken care of, that everybody uh, knows that they're cared for. Um, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing that uh, I used to be going to New York all the time to get treatment, cancer treatment, and uh, I would be watching people get on the subways and on the buses and things. And you could see some people had just in their, in their beings, they've had such a tough life that um, uh, just, it's just obvious from their, their bodies um, that they've had a really, really hard time. And I would look at these people and I would send them lots of metta, but then I'd also be feeling like, gosh, what would the world be like if every single person knew that they were loved? If every person came into this world to a welcoming family and knew that they were loved, um, I think it would be a whole lot, uh, a whole lot better for everybody. So um, this is the other thing that um, we need to to remember is that we are. Uh, Ty uh, has told us that. Um, I'm trying to see. He uh, he said um, that we we're made up of five aggregates. The five skandhas: uh, form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. Those are all of the things that all of the different things that make us up, and all of them are impermanent. So the form is just our body, the feelings, our perceptions. Um, and he said, that's our territory. Those, those things that make us up, those are, that's our territory. And we're the sovereign of our territory. We are the king or the queen of our territory. And our job is to take care of that territory. And um, he said that the territory outside is a reflection of the territory inside. And he says, uh, our situation is a projection of what's inside. Um, he says, the kingdom of God inside determines the kingdom of God outside. And so this is the, the part that we have to understand. I think it's really easy to be feeling so powerless and how uh, our little lives really don't make too much difference in the bigger picture. Every single life does. I think that's the other really beautiful thing in this uh, pandemic that we've been experiencing is I know for myself anyway, um, I've really become keenly aware of how precious our, uh, that our, our human beings are, that every person I come in contact with, um, I'm just so happy to see them. I'm so happy that they're not sick. I'm happy that they're still here. Uh, and there's just a preciousness. Uh, you, really, you really come to value uh, every single person. 
Um, and so when we are taking care of all of the internal formations, when we take care of our bodies, when we take care of our feelings, when we take care of our minds, um, we take good care of them so that we don't just allow them to go running off into dualities, to, to go running off into uh, allowing the seeds in our consciousness to be watered with hatred and anger and violence all the time. And instead, uh, see that as a possibility. It's like, yep, right now I have the possibility of watering those seeds in my own consciousness. And I'm going to choose not to do that. Um, that we are then creating the world in which we live. I could see this when I was working with high school kids, that uh, I was doing crisis intervention work, and a lot of the kids that would come to see me were in trouble for all kinds of things. But a lot of them were doing things that were illegal, and um, sometimes they're stealing cars or stealing things, or breaking and entering. And um, I would talk with them, and they were the most paranoid kids in the high school that uh, because those were the seeds they were watering in their own consciousness, that's how they viewed the world. So when Ty says that um, uh, our territory outside is a reflection of the territory inside, that their territory inside was one of lying and cheating and scheming and plotting. Um, and so that's how they viewed the world that uh, to them the world was a very scary place because they thought every single person was coming from that same kind of mindset. Uh, and we create hells for ourselves that way. Um, the more that we abandon uh, our interest in taking good care of each other, the more we abandon our capacity to have respect for each other. When I talk about the people on the subway or the buses, I would see people who've had really, really hard lives. And I would feel nothing but respect for those people because there they are. They got up this morning. They're dealing with their life. They're getting on about their business, however they are. It's not easy to do that. People that are struggling with addictions, that are trying their best to pull their lives together and to uh, uh, lead productive lives. Um, I have nothing but respect. Every human being deserves our respect. Um, I had a friend who was studying with an Indian teacher years ago, and uh, the Indian teacher was giving a talk in um, New York City. And after the talk, he and his attendants were walking down the street. My friend was with them. And there was a guy who was drunk in the doorway of a building. And he was yelling obscenities at this teacher because he had a turban on and he was dressed in robes and things. So he was yelling all these obscenities at him. And uh, all of the uh, teacher's attendants were just appalled. They were just horrified, trying to rush him away. And the teacher said, no, don't, don't bother. It's not, a, it's not a problem. He said, that man might be more enlightened than all of us. He just has one thing that he's trying to work out in this lifetime. And to be able to cut through the surface like that, uh, we need to be able to do that for ourselves first, to have nothing but compassion for ourselves. And uh, when we go back and do that healing of the past that we do, the practice that we do, 
a lot of people will go back and have criticism and judgment. Oh, I should have known better. I can't believe I did that. Yada, da, da. No, we go back to develop understanding that considering my conditioning, considering the habits that I develop, it's the logical thing. It, was, it would be the most logical thing for me to have done. Even though it was unskillful, even though it might have caused suffering for myself and other people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I need to be able to develop my understanding and compassion for myself. And once we can do that, we can develop our understanding and compassion for other people. It's very easy to see through other people. Um, when I saw the video of uh, George Floyd getting killed, um, I saw the policeman that had his knee on his neck. And for me, I was just horrified by the disconnect that that struck me as powerfully as anything in that, in that video was absolutely the nonchalance, the uh, total disconnection from his heart. And I immediately looked at that man and I thought, oh my gosh, what happened to him? What could have possibly happened that would have caused that kind of disconnection from his heart? Um, something really bad, I think, happened. But uh, we need to be able, and it doesn't condone the action, ever. It's a horrible, terrible thing that, uh, that he did. Uh, but I don't have to hate him. I don't have to go to a place of hatred. I just, I can go to a place of understanding and know he's got to be stopped. That, uh, that absolutely should never, ever, ever happen again. And hopefully it's awakened, like I said, the rest of us to the really deeply ingrained problem of racism that we need to uh, look at in ourselves and in our culture and do what we can to uh, uproot uh, those deep roots and develop more uh, love and understanding and compassion for everyone. So, my dear friends, I really hope that I've offered you something and I just wanted to end with a little very There we go. A very little tiny poem called Fluent by John O'Donohue. And he says, I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. And I hope that that could be a takeaway from uh, what we've been looking at tonight, that we don't know what's going to happen, that don't know mind uh, can lead us to that place of uh, being surprised, just developing curiosity and being surprised at our own unfolding, that if we can um, have that kind of spaciousness to not stick labels on ourselves, to not, not, um, uh, not trap ourselves in these uh, tightly held views of ourselves and everybody else, uh, we may be very, very surprised uh, at our own unfolding. So may it be so. Thank you again for uh, being with us tonight. You can.
see if I can 